turn to the second chapter of the book of Ezra. We'll begin reading there in a few moments. Ezra chapter 2. As you uh, turn there, let me just remind you of where we are in history. Again, as we come to the book of Ezra, in the days of the kings of the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews had forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns, we're told, that could hold no water. They began to worship foreign gods. They began to imitate the pagan people around them. Uh, There was a do-it-yourself pride that entered into the land, and there was widespread rejection of God's law. And therefore, as we said last week, in 605 B.C., according to the word of the Lord in Isaiah 39, they were carried to Babylon, and nothing was left. And according to the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 29, they spent 70 years in that exile in Babylon. But now, according to that same word to Jeremiah, when the 70 years were completed, God fulfilled his good word and brought them back to the land. That's what we read about in the book of Ezra. And specifically, according to the word of the Lord in Isaiah 44, written 170 years before the fact, the Persian king Cyrus acceded to the throne, and he sent the Jews back to their homeland. He decreed the rebuilding of the temple. He made provisions for the work of the temple. All of this took place, as we saw last week in Ezra chapter 1, around the year 538 B.C. And now tonight, as we come to chapter 2, that prophesied and paid-for return takes place. Chapter 2 actually records the return of the Jews to the promised land, the statistics, the family names, and so on. It actually really records who returned when they came back. And if you scan your eye down the page here in chapter 2, you can see a long list of names and numbers unfold. And we're actually, in a few moments, going to read Ezra's roll call in its entirety, uh, as long as it is and as repetitive as it may seem to us at first glance. We're going to read all of it. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and give you the first of four observations that we need to make about this chapter, about Ezra chapter 2. The first one, very simply, is that all Scripture is God-breathed, even this long census report. All Scripture is God-breathed. So says the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is useful, profitable. Even these 70 verses worth of statistics and names that we do not know here in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra's census printout, in other words, is in the Bible for a reason. It's profitable for us for teaching. It's profitable for us for training in righteousness and so on. It's an unusual chapter, yes, but this unusual chapter has something to say to us tonight. Indeed, as we're going to see, it has at least four things to say to us. But the first of those teaching points, as I've been saying, is that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it's profitable. All of it is worth our time, even these passages that are difficult for us to stay focused on as we read along for 70 verses. In fact, if you've read the book of Ezra on your own, you may have come to chapter 2 and found your mind wandering as you read the chapter. Or perhaps you got to the end and you couldn't have told your neighbor a single name or number that you read within an hour of finishing verse 70. 
So it's possible that you've come to Ezra 2 before and just walk quickly over the ground of this chapter, assuming that there's not much to see, the same way that you would walk through the churchyard out here with no thought of what might be lying in the soil beneath your feet. But there have been a couple of different men recently who've metal detected the property, and they've come away with some interesting little treasures, Heather's father being one of them. You wouldn't think there would be anything out in the dirt in the front yard, but there's something there. And I submit to you that the same is true with every passage of Holy Scripture, even the ones that seem to be the flattest or the most uninteresting landscapes. Ezra 2 is certainly not the most riveting passage in the Bible, and yet, like every parcel of the biblical landscape, this is holy ground. And as such, there are surely interesting things to mine from it. Not only interesting things, but profitable, valuable vital things. So as we prepare to read this chapter, I'm well aware that your mind may be tempted to wander as I work my way through all 70 verses, but I hope that your ears will be attuned for the beeping of the metal detector, as it were. I hope that you'll be listening for things that perhaps you haven't noticed before, but that perhaps you ought to notice. I hope that you'll give Ezra 2 a chance tonight and just see what treasures may turn up. All scripture is God-breathed, including The following record, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'anah. The number of the men of the people of Israel... The sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Atar of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Natopha, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Osmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Aram, Chafira, and Birah, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sanaa, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emmer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. 
the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Re'ah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabiam, the sons of Ami, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now these are those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priest, the sons of Abiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly numbered 42,360, besides their male and female servants, who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So a lot there, isn't there? And again, it would be easy to read that and to think some of this is just monotonous and unhelpful. But all scripture is breathed out by God. And so as we've combed this parcel of ground, the question is, what treasures of truth should we dig up from it? What do we find here that is profitable and that's useful for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness? Well, let me point out three more items. All scripture is inspired by God, we've said, yes. But this chapter also demonstrates, secondly, God's concern for the individual. God's concern for the individual. Now, chances are most of these people and place names mean very little to you. Surely we all, of course, recognize Bethlehem in verse 21 and perhaps Jericho in verse 34. Some of you hopefully could uh, say something about Ai in verse 28 or about Barzillai, the Gileadite, in verse 61. We studied him a few months ago. But by and large, these family names and these place names are total unknowns to us. 
If someone were to ask you to speak about Nebo in verse 29, how long would you be able to wax eloquent? Or Mogbish in verse 30, or the other Elam in verse 31. What would you be able to say about these places and these people? Probably nothing. Now, our ignorance is not necessarily that we've neglected the Bible. Uh, That may be the case with some of these names and people. But many of these people and places are only mentioned here in Ezra chapter 2. And so we don't know them because no one else knows them either. But that just illustrates further how obscure many of these people and these places were. Most of those who returned with the people of God to Jerusalem in the time of Ezra chapter 2 were no names. And surely that was the case even as they related to one another. These returning Jews may have been more familiar with the names of the families and the places in this chapter than we are, but the numbers that we read would have just been numbers to them just like they are to us. These numbers didn't necessarily represent for the folks on this journey faces that they knew. Remember, there were 42,000 plus people in this caravan on the way back to Jerusalem. And so if you're in the caravan, as you trekked along, you don't necessarily know the family that's in the wagon next to you. It's a lot of people on this trip. Many of these people would not even known all the folks in their own families as they're listed here. Just looking at verse 3, the sons of Perosh were 2,172 men. Surely they didn't all know one another by name and by face. Even in verse 4, the sons of Shephatiah, 372 men. If you had a family of 372 extended cousins and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, would you know them all? Perhaps, probably not. The point I'm trying to make is that the names and numbers that Ezra records here, for us certainly, and even for the people who made this trip, would have been in some measure just statistics even for the very people who were a part of the statistics, this wouldn't have meant 42,000 individual faces that they knew. In some ways, reading this chapter is like reading the phone book. You may run down and you may know some names in the book, but certainly not them all. And yet the point that I want to make is that God thought it important enough to name every clan and to number every single individual that went back. Every single one. And even their animals, we're told near the end of the chapter. Ezra could have simply recorded that 42,360 citizens made the trip back, as he tells us in verse 64. That could have been basically the extent of the chapter. He could have gone from verse 1 to verse 64 and left out everything in between. But instead, he tells us, for instance, that there were 52 from the sons of Nebo in verse 29, or that there were 128 from the town of Anathoth in verse 23, or 1,017 from the family of Harim in verse 39. Those numbers, remember, were not just written down by Ezra. They were breathed out by God. Isn't that what we said? God moved someone in this caravan to write down all of these family names and all of these place names and to number every single individual and even the animals. And 80 plus years later, God told Ezra to write these things down, these details that seem so tedious to us. These details, they are God-breathed. Why did God want Ezra to write down the name of every family and to number every individual that was on this trip? Undoubtedly, there were multiple reasons. But one reason 
why God recorded all the family names and numbered every individual was because he cared about every family and he cared about every individual on the list. That's the point that I'm trying to make. We may not know these people's names. Two families even camped next to one another on this journey may have never met one another before. And yet, though they were strangers to one another in some cases, and though they're certainly strangers to us, every name and every face and every story was familiar to God. He counted every single one. Now, we marveled last week that 170 plus years in advance, God specifically named the king who would make this journey possible. Do you remember that? It's amazing that God almost two centuries prior, not only said you're going to go back to Jerusalem, not only said there's going to be a king who is going to send you back, a pagan king, but named him. God knew his name, King Cyrus, well in advance. And yet, what I want to say to you tonight is it's just as amazing, maybe more so, that God knew the name of the little clan of Osmaveth in verse 24 with its 42 people. God knew them Two, not just the kings, but the commoners. And if God knew the 42 men and women and children of Osmaveth, then surely he knows you and your family. In other words, he doesn't just look down at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church and say, well, there are about 90 people who somewhat regularly walk through those glass doors at the back of the auditorium. No, God looks down and he knows that there are four people of the surname of Gorby, Six people of the sons of Haddo, two from the family of Green, seven people of the inhabitants of Reading, and so on. God does not look out onto a crowd of people, whether it's our little crowd or the much bigger crowds at Great American Ballpark or Paul Brown Stadium, and only see a crowd of 90 or a crowd of 42,360. He counts every individual, and he sees them, and he knows them, and he cares for them, every single one. You included. The Lord knows you as an individual. He knows how much food is in your refrigerator tonight or how much is not in your refrigerator. He knows what keeps you awake when you go to bed at night. He knows how many bone spurs are in that particular joint. He knows what you look at on the Internet. He knows what your besetting sins are. He knows even the number of the hairs on your head. He knows all of these things, not because he is an obsessive statistician, but because he's a father to his children. And so we must learn the lesson of the statistics in the Bible, not only in Ezra 2, but in many other places where we have numbers and names and numbers and names and numbers and names that seem to mean very little to us. What is the lesson of all these numbers and names? Well, the lesson is that numbers like 42,360 or 128 or 42 appear in the Bible. They appear there because someone took the time to count every single individual. And the reason someone took the time to count every single individual is because our Heavenly Father is concerned about every single individual. So that's the second point tonight. All Scripture is God-breathed. God is concerned about the individual. Now thirdly, Ezra chapter 2 points up the dilemma of uncertainty. The dilemma of uncertainty, specifically your uncertainty about your place in the kingdom and the family of God. All these various Jewish names and families are tallied up here in this chapter, 
But did you notice that there's a hiccup in verses 59 and 60? Did you catch that as we read along? Were you still paying attention when we got that far down the page? In verses 59, we find out that there were certain folks who made the trip, but, quote, they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. That's an interesting tidbit, is it not? These people had been gone from Israel for decades now, gone from their hometowns for decades now. In fact, most of them had been born in Babylon unless they were quite aged. And so what we have here uh, is a group of people who are of the sons of Osmaveth or the sons of Ai or whatever it may be who know that based on their genealogy. But now we find that some people's genealogy was a little bit cloudy. They didn't have the records. They didn't know exactly if their families were from Israel or not. And these people in verses 59 and 60, evidently they were given the benefit of the doubt. Evidently they were allowed to stay in the land, allowed to enter into the fruits of the land. But when the question came as to whether they were true Israelites, there was uncertainty. It couldn't be proven that they were not Israelites, but neither could it be proven that they were Israelites. And so the book of Ezra leaves this question mark hanging over these people. And I just want to say that a similar thing can happen to people in the church of Jesus Christ, can it not? There are people who go up with the people of God. They attend the church services. They benefit from the fruits of the land, as it were. They are in many ways a part of the group, just like these 652 people in verses 59 and 60. And yet they're uncertain. Am I a part of the group or am I not? Am I a Christian or am I not? Perhaps they're saying, I'd like to be a Christian, and maybe there's not evidence definitely that I'm not a believer, but neither can I definitely say that I am a believer. I wonder if there's anyone like that here tonight. Maybe you're here, children or adults, and you're glad to be here, but you're not actually certain if you're part of the family of God or if you're just a welcome guest. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Am I a part of the family? Am I not a part of the family? This dilemma of uncertainty is one that is widespread, surely. There are always people who find themselves wondering if they're in or if they're out. Am I in the family of God or am I not? Well, unfortunately for the sons of Deliah and Tobiah and Nakoda here in Ezra 2.60, there wasn't much that they could do to settle the question. What was in doubt in their case was their physical Lineage, and they'd evidently lost the paperwork that they needed to prove it. But for those who are uncertain adherence to the church, the question is altogether different. The question of membership in the church isn't one of physical parentage, is it? It's not whether or not my parents were Israelites or whether they were from a certain tribe or even whether my parents are Christians. The question is of spiritual parentage. Have I been born of God? Is he my father? Am I his child? The church is comprised of a spiritual family tree, not a physical one. And so to rid yourself of the uncertainty of whether you belong in the family tree, you don't have to do what these men had to do in verses 59 and 60. You don't have to go to Ancestry.com and try to trace all of your family roots. No, if you're uncertain to your place in the family of God, you only need to go to John 1.12 and embrace this promise concerning Jesus. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's how you become a child of God. 
Believe in his name. Do you see? You and I are in a much better position than the sons of Deliah and Tobiah and Nakoda here in Ezra chapter 2. There's no reason for us to remain unsure of our birthright, of our place in God's family, of our belonging to the Israel of God. We don't have to go back and do any research, but simply arise and go to Jesus, even tonight, and believe in his name. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Some of you could end your uncertainty tonight. You could get yourself out of the Ezra 2.59 dilemma tonight. You could answer the question. You would no longer be unable to give evidence as to whether you are of Israel. If you would come to Jesus this night, if you would nail your colors to the mast, if you would step over the line of faith, if you would believe in his name, and then if you would come and talk to the elders about professing your faith publicly through baptism. The uncertainty could cease. Your spiritual parentage would become evident. Your spot in the family tree would be fulfilled if you would profess Christ, if you would believe in his name. Now, I don't mention baptism because I think baptism saves you. Of course not. But simply because baptism is the New Testament way of publicly declaring your allegiance to your faith in Jesus. And for some people, that lack of a public declaration of Christ is perhaps the reason why they're uncertain. You think you believe in Jesus. You hope you believe in his name. But you've never told anyone. You've never given that pledge of faith publicly. You've never stood in front of God in the congregation and said, I am a believer in Christ. I have been buried with him. I am risen with him. And so you're left where these 652 were left in verse 59. You hope you're a part of the family. You think you're perhaps a part of the family, but you've not yet produced the evidence. Would you step over the line tonight? children? Would you nail your colors to the mass tonight, adults who've never professed your faith in Jesus? Would you unashamedly believe in his name and do so publicly? Incidentally, this is perhaps what finally settled the question of whether the three families here in Ezra chapter 2, 59 and 60 could stay in the land and enjoy the fruits. Whatever could or couldn't be said about where they came from, they publicly identified themselves with the people of God and with the house of God. They returned with the exiles. And what a joy if some in this room would come to Christ and identify with his people publicly even this night. Now, it's also possible that you're here tonight and you have publicly professed faith in Jesus. But recently, you've been concerned that perhaps it wasn't real. Recently, you've been concerned that you have no real evidence, verse 60, that you are a child of God. But the solution is the same for you. You can't take uncertain evidence and make it certain any more than the 652 questionables here in the book of Ezra could do. You may not be able to go back in time and discern whether your spiritual birth was a real one, but what you can do is to be sure that you believe on his name tonight. You may not be able to be sure that you're ever a child of God before tonight, but you can be sure that you're a child of God tonight. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I hope you're seeing in Ezra 2 more than you thought might be here. This chapter reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed, This chapter demonstrates God's care for the individual. This chapter calls attention to the dilemma of uncertainty. And I'm going to give you one more major observation before we finish. But before I do, let me briefly point out two items that I would add to my list if we have more time. Just two other things to notice and study on your own. First, 
notice in verses 61 to 63 that there were not only some people who didn't know if they belonged to Israel, but there were also some priests who weren't sure if they were actually priests. There were men in verses 61 to 63 who were no doubt Israelites. There was no question that they belonged in the family of God, but the question was, were they qualified to lead, to intercede for, to teach the rest of the family? And if we had more time tonight, we would unfold the idea that the same sorts of questions ought to be asked for leaders in the church. The qualifications, of course, are different for New Testament leaders. These priests needed to ask and answer questions about their ancestry. And we need to ask and answer different questions, mainly about character, according to Titus and Timothy. But the principle is the same. God's leaders ought to be sure that they're qualified. Think on that sometime on your own. The other item I'll mention very briefly is just the generosity of the people in verses 68 and 69. God had, through Cyrus, provided a great deal of what was needed for the rebuilding of his house. But here we find God's own people opening their checkbooks and being generous toward the Lord and toward his house. That's an amazing thing. They gave quite a bit of money, as you can see there in verses 68 and 69. Again, I say you have to think these things through a bit more on your own. But for now, I want to get back to our final main point. Let me remind you of what we said. Ezra chapter 2 reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed. It demonstrates God's concern for the individual. It calls attention to the dilemma of uncertainty. And finally, this chapter calls our attention to the little town of Bethlehem. We said at the beginning that if you knew no other name in Ezra's long list here, surely you know the name Bethlehem in verse 21. And of course, there's good reason for that. You read through Ezra 2, and there's all these names that you don't recognize, perhaps you can't pronounce, but you come to verse 21 and you say, aha, I know Bethlehem. And the reason that you know Bethlehem is because it was in Bethlehem, first of all, that the widow Ruth found redemption in the house of Boaz. It was in Bethlehem that her grandson Jesse was born. It was into Jesse's house in Bethlehem that the prophet Samuel rode that day when God sent him to anoint the next king of Israel. It was in Bethlehem that he poured the anointing oil on young David's head. It was in Bethlehem that David learned to be a man after God's own heart. And it was to this shepherd of Bethlehem that God promised to grant a son who would reign on his throne forever. I say, if there's any familiar name in Ezra's list, it's Bethlehem, verse 21. This little town was famous even when these 123 exiles returned to it. They came back to a place that already had its name in the annals of history. But scarcely could this little band of settlers have imagined what blessing was yet to come to their little town of Bethlehem. For five and a half centuries after these 123 arrived home, five and a half centuries after this census in the book of Ezra, there was another census. And there was another group of people who returned to Bethlehem, to the town of their ancestors. Among them was a virgin who was with child, engaged to a man named Joseph, who was of the house and family of David. And therefore, wonder of wonders, it was in Bethlehem that the days for her to give birth were completed. 
It was in Bethlehem that she wrapped the babe in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. It was in Bethlehem that the angels sang glory to God in the highest. It was in Bethlehem that the shepherds ran to see what this thing could be. It was in Bethlehem that the Magi brought their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It was in Bethlehem that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was in Bethlehem that the hopes and fears of all the years were fulfilled in the Messiah. And so I ask you, as we turn back to Ezra chapter 2, aren't you glad that God was concerned about every individual and every family that went back from the captivity in Babylon? Aren't you glad that he paid attention to and cared for and watched over the men of Bethlehem? Aren't you glad that God ensured that the men of Bethlehem, in verse 21, would not be among those who'd lost their family records and weren't sure where they'd belonged? No, there were 123 men of Bethlehem because God had preserved them. All those years had gone by. David's family had resettled in Jerusalem as royalty, and Bethlehem had returned to its status as a sleepy backwater. And now for all these decades, it was perhaps a virtual ghost town during the period of exile. But God kept alive a remnant of 123 people from Bethlehem, 123 Jewish men and women who remembered where they came from. And God brought them back to reestablish the town that he ordained as the birthplace of his son and our Savior. What would have happened if these 123 had not been preserved? If they'd not returned, if they'd not rebuilt their town, how different would world history be without Bethlehem? It was this little smattering of men and women who rebuilt the homes and re-sowed the fields and resettled the town that's now at the epicenter of the world every December. But little could they have imagined what they were rebuilding back in Ezra chapter 2. But of course, God didn't bring them back merely for the sake of their town. Certainly didn't bring them back so that we'd have a quaint setting for our Christmas imaginations. God brought back the men of Bethlehem in order to prepare a place for the child of Bethlehem. What am I trying to say? Simply that tucked away into Ezra's seemingly monotonous census report, we have another evidence that God really was working all of Old Testament history toward the manger and toward the cross and toward the Savior who makes them both so precious to us. When he was meticulously counting all the 42,360 Jews that came back to the land and the 123 who returned to Bethlehem, God was not only concerned to prepare a place for each of them, but to prepare a place for his son and through him to prepare a place for all who will receive him, all who will believe on his name. Our salvation is bound up with the little town of Bethlehem. Our salvation is bound up with Jesus, of course, and therefore it's bound up with Bethlehem where the virgin was with child and the word became flesh. And praise God, the little town to which our Savior was born still exists. And it existed for Jesus to be born there because of what happened in Ezra chapter 2, verse 21. It's an amazing thing, God bringing these men and women back. In the book of Ezra, God brought 42,360 men, women, boys, and girls out of their exile in Babylon and into the land of promise. 
And in the gospel of Jesus, he is bringing a multitude which no one can count, Revelation 7, out of their bondage to sin and into the land that is fairer than day. The first return from exile is a picture and a symbol of the second. But neither the Old Testament symbol and picture nor its New Testament and heavenly fulfillment are complete without Ezra 2.21, without the little town of Bethlehem.